ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racing, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Is it time to amplify your income potential? Discover Amplify's high-quality and high-income ETFs designed to provide you monthly income. When income matters to you, explore Amplify ETFs. Get current monthly yields at AmplifyYields.com. There's no guarantee that distributions will be made. Investing risk includes principal loss. Visit Amplify ETFs to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully. Amplify ETFs are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me will be Laura Krieger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify, and this will be fun. We're going to look at new ETF launches so far this year. Uh, as always, there have been some very interesting and innovative new products that have come to market. And I also think as you start digging into these, there are some broader ETF and investor stories that actually come to surface. I, I feel like these new launches can uh, sort of paint a picture in terms of what investors are interested in right now and uh, the overall vibe in the markets. So I'm just going to uh, tee up a bunch of these launches for Laura, and uh, we'll try to unpack some of those broader stories, and we'll see where that takes us. I'll then be joined by Bob Elliott, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Unlimited, who last October, they launched the first of what is expected to be a full suite of ETFs. They launched the Unlimited HFND Multi-Strategy Return Tracker ETF, ticker HFND, which, uh, by the way, already has over $70 million in assets, which is pretty good, though that probably shouldn't come as a surprise if you're familiar with Bob's background, because he was previously at Bridgewater Associates, the largest hedge fund firm in the world. Uh, he was on their investment committee, and actually, uh, prior to that, he built and led Ray Dalio's personal investment research team at Bridgewater. Uh, so I think you're really going to enjoy hearing from Bob. Uh, he has big ambitions to disrupt the 2 and 20 hedge fund model. So we'll discuss that and obviously walk through his first ETF. And then to close this week, I'll be joined by Luke Oliver, head of climate investments and head of strategy at Crane Shares. And we're going to stay on this topic of alternative investments, but probably not in the way you might expect. Uh, we're going to cover an area that I just don't think many investors are familiar with, including yours truly. Uh, I'll be honest. This is a segment of the market I could use some education on, and that's carbon credit futures and also carbon offset futures. And I know everyone gets tired of me talking about uh, ETF innovation, but it's pretty amazing that there are now ETFs offering exposure to these areas. So we'll get into a, quite a bit of detail with Luke, who I would argue knows this space better than anyone. And Crane Shares, of course, does have several ETFs here, including the nearly $700 million Crane Shares Global Carbon Strategy ETF, ticker KRBN. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci. Or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's start with Vetify's Laura Krigger. 
Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, I feel like it's been way too long. Welcome back to the podcast. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It really has been too long. Um, Okay, so this is one of my absolute favorite topics to cover with you. I just love getting your uh, take on new ETF launches, which if you look so far this year, so there have been about 90 new ETFs that have come to market, uh, a bit of a slower pace than what we've seen over the past couple of years, though not bad. However, if you look at closures, there have been something like, what, 50 or 60 closures, which is on the high side. Um, I, I guess on that note, before we get into some specific uh, ETFs, any quick comments or thoughts on either of those stats? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So Q1 2023 is a little bit different than 2022. Uh, like you said, the number of new launches is down about 20% from last year. Closures, closures are up about 200%. Now, that's a lot of blood in the water, right? Uh, some of it is, you know, some of those closures were a big batch of um, closures from Invesco, from, from one uh, fund company that was kind of trimming their lineup. But, you know, there has been a lot of blood in the water. We've seen kind of an economy that's not so great, uh, you know, for the future, higher rates, choppier markets, worse economic picture, and so on. And when you see these sorts of storm clouds on the horizon, Usually what you, what happens is that issuers, they, they look inward, right? They launch fewer products. They take a second look at what's on their, uh, in their fund suite already to see if there's a fruit in need of, need of, or branches in need of pruning, right? Um, some interesting things to note about the launches so far though. One, uh, about two thirds of the total launches this year have been active ETFs. That's well in line with what we've seen pretty much every quarter in a year since the ETF rule passed. And two, we're seeing fewer thematic ETFs launch. So it's been a tough market for thematic ETFs lately. Uh, these tend to be higher growth, uh, you know, tilted towards growth and more susceptible to higher interest rates. So it's not really that surprising that we haven't seen too many thematic uh, ETFs comparatively, but still something worth noting. Yeah, and to your point on active ETFs, I saw a stat yesterday. I believe it was active ETFs have taken in something like 30% of all inflows this year, even though they only represent, you know, 5% of of assets. But I think your stat on new launches, that's reflective of this interest around um, active. So, uh, look, I perused the list of all new launches in the first quarter, and there are some obvious ones, which I, I feel like have already gotten a ton of media attention. So I would say the Kramer ETFs from Tuttle Capital, those are certainly on that list. The uh, unusual Wales Democratic and Republican trading ETFs from uh, sub, uh, Subversive, those have gotten a lot of run. I would even say the uh, Round Hill Big Bank ETF. I, I've talked a lot about that uh, lineup that's going to continue to grow and, uh, you know, very intriguing. But I want to dig a little bit deeper here. So I've tried to find some ETFs that also tie into a broader story in the markets and, and with investors. And some of these may be more obvious than others. But l- let's just start with these uh, launches from FM Investments last week. So five more single treasury ETFs. They now have 10 ETFs altogether. And I think this may surprise some people. FM launched their first ETF in August of last year. They already have over a billion dollars in assets across that lineup, a pretty big ETF success story. So give us your thoughts on FM and these uh, new ETFs. I think the idea of single treasury ETFs make a lot of sense for a very certain type of investor. I've actually talked on about it on this show before, uh, that these are really interesting funds like U2 and U10 that only ever hold the current on-the-run you know, two-year treasury or 10-year treasury, whatever the specific focus is. So, you know, you could hold either the two-year treasury or you could hold one of these products. And so why would you do that in an ETF format? It's because it allows you to really target a extremely specific single fixed income and exposure, unlike an ETF that's sort of approximating or targeting a certain duration or credit quality. You know exactly what you're getting in this wrapper 100%. 
which means they make for very useful building blocks if you're trying to build out uh, you know, a highly liquid strategy that's um, playing, for example, um, you know, flattening or steepening in the yield curve without adding a bunch of additional uh, credit or duration risk. So you're looking to build something that has extremely precise levers that you need to pull at extremely precise times. So something that an institution would build, right, or a day trader. And I think that's where that billion and change uh, in assets is coming from. It's, it's coming from sophisticated traders. I, I, I tend to think of these single treasury funds as like the single BIP Legos in the Lego bin. You know, they're probably too small and fine for most investors, most building cases. But if you're trying to construct an elaborate creation that requires very fine detail, then it's absolutely the thing that you need. Well, and I, I, I want to ask you, let's go into a little more detail here, because if we look at a uh, an ETF, say like U10, which is FM's U.S. Treasury 10-year note ETF, and compare that to something like uh, IEF, the iShare 7 to 10-year Treasury ETF, why would somebody want to own U10 versus IEF? Does it all come down to that precision? I, I think this is really, from an ETF investor standpoint, the decision-making process. I think if you're comparing uh, buying FM's ETFs to actually going to Treasury de- uh, direct and purchasing Treasuries, you can certainly understand the value of the ETF wrapper there. But what about something like U10 versus IEF? Well, I think you answered your own question in the uh, the in asking the question, right? The the iShares product is the seven to ten year product. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's targeting that range versus the two year product, which is one hundred percent two year treasuries. You know exactly what that exposure is going to be. And for most investors, most uh, you know retail and and advisory uh, audiences, maybe that's more definition and more precision than they need. Um, but if you're building something that is extremely precise, really extremely precise bond ladder or, uh, you know, that yield curve strategy that I talked about earlier, um, then this can get you where you need to go in a much more efficient way. The other thing that uh, I'll note about these FM launches, boy, what perfect timing when you look at where rates are at. We have, uh, you know, depositors fleeing banks and going into money market funds and, um, you know, CDs and obviously short-term treasury ETFs. So, if you're FM, you probably couldn't have asked for better timing with everything uh, going on. Um, okay, another new ETF, and let's stay on the uh, topic of fixed income, is the Vanguard Short-Term Tax-Exempt Bond ETF, ticker VTES. That launched earlier in March, and I would say a uh, pretty boring <laughs> ETF overall. But I, I also think it's noteworthy anytime Vanguard launches something new. And uh, again, fixed income is clearly a big story right now. Any quick thoughts on that one? Sure. I mean, it's not the most flashiest products, but there's definitely a clear appetite for muni products with investors. The space has seen very strong and steady engagement on the Betify platform over the past 12 months. We've seen massive flows going into these ETFs over the same period, uh, about $10 billion going into MUB and SUB. Those are the iShares products, uh, just those two products alone. So I don't see any reason why Vanguard wouldn't want to try to achieve the same thing and have a complement to its uh, VTEB uh, ETF with this new product, VTES. It's basically, this ETF is a competitor to the iShares product. That's a $10 billion uh, ETF that Vanguard didn't have any competing space to. So by that nature alone, I think it's going to do well. It pairs well if you're building out a a comprehensive um, uni strategy. I'm sure it's going to work very well in model portfolios. So I think this one's going to be an ETF that gets Get some traction. Get some some assets in it. All right. Let's keep moving down the list of new launches. And, and don't laugh, but I feel like anytime you're on the podcast, uh, it's tradition that we talk a little ESG, right? <laughs> I look forward to it. I look forward to it. All right. So I have uh, several ETFs I want to ask you about here. Um, I, I guess first, any thoughts on how these Morgan Stanley uh, Calvert ESG ETFs are doing so far? I show about $230 million in assets across six ETFs, which sounds really good, but I believe each of those was seeded with $20 million. Um, 
And look, these just launched on February 1st. I guess I feel like they have underwhelmed a little bit based on what I was expecting. You may recall that one of my predictions for this year is that Morgan Stanley will be the ETF issuer of the year. So I feel like a slow start. But do you think this has been a good debut for Morgan Stanley? Have these met your expectations? I think, uh, you know, to an extent, Morgan Stanley had extremely high expectations placed on them uh, simply by nature of being Morgan Stanley, right? Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, I could say that it's been a tough market for ETFs. We've only seen, you know, so much money going in this quarter. It's well below where we were last quarter, yada, yada. But I, I don't think that's the whole story here, right? So I think the modest flows that Morgan Stanley has seen, they're not bad. Uh, any other ETF company, I think, would be perfectly happy to get $200 million going into their new products over the course of a month and change. But I think it has to do with some factors, uh, for example, the sort of general malaise we have seen around ESG investing, a growing uh, perception, an accelerating perception that ESG is a politically motivated line of investment strategy. You know, the anti-ESG outrage machine has been very effective in convincing investors that, you know, the choice to not invest in Exxon or Amazon is basically ticking a box on a ballot, right? So I think that has something to do with it here, and that's a headwind. Um, but there's also the other factor of, you know, managers, active managers entering the ETF space have discovered that what is cheap in mutual fund land isn't always considered cheap enough by ETF investors. So, you know, fees of, of 20 basis points, 25 basis points on core equity ETFs, which might have been considered extremely cheap just five years ago among ETF investors. It just doesn't really cut the mustard anymore. So that said, Morgan Stanley, it's, it's big. Uh, this is early days for them. It's harder to think of any heavyweight heavier uh, entering the ETF space right now. And uh, their fees are, are not too bad. So, you know, I, I think they have the muscle to stick this one out for the long haul and grow their assets over time you know, steady and wins the race. No, I agree with that. I mean, I I still think they're going to have some success here. But I've said before, I view these Morgan Stanley ETFs as as sort of a litmus test for the future of ESG ETFs overall. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's too strong. Uh, We'll see what happens. Now, I I always try to stay balanced. And so in looking at new launches, have you looked at these – Putnam ESG ETF launches. They launched five ESG-related uh, ETFs in January. I show these things already have over $800 million in assets. That's pretty impressive, you know, no matter where you stand on the ESG side. Yeah, it, it certainly is. And I would, you know, be willing to bet that most, uh, almost certainly this uh, inflow is due to bring your own assets, mm-hmm. you know, money, right? Um, but Putnam, you know, they launched these products as building blocks for an ESG-focused target date retirement fund suite. That's exactly what they're being used for. The products have a very clear use case, and that's being demonstrated. So, you know, great for Putnam. Um, I won't discount that there was probably some organic flows going into the, these products because um, specifically the, the ESG bond ETFs um, that they have launched, ESG bond ETFs are still a fairly undiscovered country by asset managers in ETF land. Um, given that active management is all, already sort of in vogue in ETF land, and it's a more popular approach in bond ETF, and then you layer on top of it uh, the ESG framework, I think there's maybe you know, something uh, truly unique, a, a real opportunity to kind of offer a differentiated approach in what currently exists the few options that currently exist in the ESG bond ETF space. Well, Putnam for sure will be uh, an issuer that will be on my radar. I'll continue to watch. Okay, one more ESG-related ETF, the uh, Calamos Antetokounmpo, say that three times quickly, uh, Global Sustainable Equities ETF, ticker SROI. So this ETF uh, obviously has a marketing partnership with Giannis. I'm not saying his last name again. Uh, <laughs> the NBA player, right? Uh, this ETF only has about $7.5 million in assets. But I-, I was curious as to whether you like this approach of using an NBA player uh, you know, on the marketing side. I saw that they rang the bell on Friday. I believe your colleague Todd Rosenbluth uh, was actually there. What, what do you think about this one? 
So I I like Calamus. I like Giannis. And you're right. Todd was there at the bell ringing. He was like a kid in a candy store. It was so ha- I'm so excited for him that he got to to meet Giannis. Um, why all of those things are true, I, I unfortunately I do think there's little evidence that having a spokesperson for an ETF helps it gain any wider approval or uptake with the investing public or with retail investors. Uh, you know, the, the kind of classic example of this was with the Buzz ETF, right? And they partnered with the most high-profile uh, investor I could think of at the time in the, in the era of meme stocks, um, at least relevant to the particular audience they were trying to target. And that was Dave Portnoy of Barstool Sports. Um, but that fund is just, I think it's at about 50 or 60 million in assets right now. It's been bleeding hundreds of millions of dollars since its inception. It just hasn't really um, done much. So I hope it works differently for Calamos. Uh, I love seeing new folks come to the marketplace. I think they have an interesting and good product. Um, but ultimately, it all comes down to performance and not personality. Well, I'm not trying to bait you because we don't have time for an extended ESG debate today. But I've said if Giannis can't sell ESG, then nobody can. <laughs> so uh, we'll, we'll, that's another one we'll watch. And uh, we, we can move on here. I do want to note iShares also rolled out uh, a couple of ESG ETFs this year. They're ESG-aware growth and value ETFs, ticker EV, uh, EVUS and EGUS. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, let's get to a few more launches here. Uh, I guess I'll go with these five new launches from Sprott, uh, including the first ever Nickel Miners ETF, the Sprott Nickel Miners ETF, ticker NIKL. They also launched a Lithium Miners ETF, LITP, a Junior Copper Miners ETF, COPJ, a Junior Uranium Miners ETF, URNJ, and then a uh, an Energy Transition Materials ETF, ticker SETM. Uh, do, do these pique your interest at all? As a former commodities hound, absolutely. <laughs> these are these. I'm keeping my eyes on these. I do think it's um, it's interesting. So so we've had uh, lithium, uranium, and copper miners ETFs on the market in the past. However, brought versions of these are more pure play than what was currently on the market. A great example is uh, the Sprott Uranium, the Junior Uranium Miners ETF. That only holds miners in the uranium space and holders of physical uh, uranium assets versus the Global X uh, URA product. And that holds uranium miners and nuclear energy producers and nuclear energy technology makers and, and so on and so on. So um, it's, a, it's much more of a pure play on the mining space. Now, that nickel product, that nickel ETF, NIKL, I think that's the one that's really interesting. And it's not just, I don't find it interesting just because it's the first of its kind, um, but nickel is a really underappreciated yet extremely critical mineral when it comes to all sorts of next-gen technologies uh, from, you know, electric vehicles to wind and gas turbines, natural gas turbines, to the alloys that are being used in next-gen smartphones and so on. And, and on top of that, there is an underreported nickel shortage happening right now. There's a disruption that was uh, happening on the supply side, intensified by the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And it's not like you can just go out and start up a new nickel mine on a dime. It takes time and effort and capital. So I think this is an interesting product, one that commodities investors will probably appreciate more so than the wider investing public. But you know, those who do get it could see some pretty strong performance, I think. Yeah, and this is a pretty big commitment uh, from Sprott. I mean, to launch five ETFs in this space, there have been some other issuers that have launched uh, mining ETFs, junior mining ETFs that haven't had a ton of success. But clear, clear, uh, sorry, clearly Sprott thinks that they can uh, move the needle in the space. And, yeah, the, the nickel miners one will be interesting to watch for sure. Um, okay, Let's get to one more ETF, just a few minutes left here. And because I can't help myself, uh, and also because this is another area you and I always seem to venture into, <laughs> let's talk about the uh, the Bitwise Bitcoin Strategy Optimum Roll ETF, ticker BITC. And I did have uh, Bitwise's Matt Hogan on the podcast a, a couple of weeks ago to discuss this one. But I'm curious as to your thoughts. Like, Do you think this can take some market share from uh, Bitto, the, uh, the ProShares Bitcoin Strategy ETF? Well, that's a good question, and I, I think it's uh, rare that you see 
or that you have seen um, truly differentiated products launch in the crypto space over the past uh, couple of years. And this one is. This one is actually kind of cool, right? So, so BITC, it approaches Bitcoin exposure, um, you know, you, thinking of it as like futures contracts first, right? So most Bitcoin ETFs, they hold the front month uh, futures contract, but BITC is searching for the futures contract across the curve, um, across all the various expiration dates, looking for the ones that have the highest roll yield across you know, the next several months. And that's actually a strategy that has proven itself out in the commodities markets. Um, for example, Invesco's DBC and PDPC, they take this approach with a broad-based commodities basket. And performance-wise, DBC has buried its uh, non-optimized cousins. Uh, GSG is a good example. Um, If you compare those two on all timeframes, especially the longer-term timeframes, like uh, the 10-year version um, or the five-year, you know, on a five-year, DBC has outperformed GSG by over 400 basis points. So that's that's pretty good. If you're holding that long-term exposure, you want to – you know, the, the evidence is suggesting that maybe the optimized version of futures exposure is the way you want to go. So I, I think it's possible that if investors are in the mood to add Bitcoin exposure to their portfolios and they're in a mood to get that exposure via futures versus spot, then, yeah, BITC is a, a better constructed vehicle. That said, I'm not really sure. I'm not convinced that the appetite is there anymore for Bitcoin exposure from at least from the sorts of investors who would understand how and why BITC is a new and improved vehicle versus just piling into the first mover in the space, BITO. So so Bitcoin prices have recovered a little bit. It doesn't really seem to be enticing significant dollars back into the space, though. If you look at flows for BITO over the uh, start of the year, it's only brought in about $40 million which is a far cry from the billions that it was bringing in every week back in 2021. So we'll see. Maybe this is another case of slow and steady wins the race. And the ICC, you know, is just needs to hold on until Bitcoin swings back into popularity in the um, popular consciousness. And then away they're off to the races. But I do think this is an interesting and, and, and better product uh, in some, you know, or not better because I don't want to make a value judgment, but I, I think it's a, a, an improved construction um, for futures-based exposure. Well, and I'll just tell you, with the way you described that, I thought that was really well said in talking to Matt Hogan. They're positioning this for sure as a, a longer-term holding, that they're going after more strategic asset allocators here. They would argue that BITC is a better vehicle to, exactly for the reasons that you stated, whereas something like BIDO is a better tactical trading tool. So, exactly. you know, the question is whether or not they can get longer term strategic asset allocators in there. And, and to get to make that happen, they're going to have to get those allocators over the hump on Bitcoin itself, to your point, and making a <laughs> an allocation here. By the way, before I let you go, did you see that uh, Velocity Shares recently filed for a two times Bitcoin strategy ETF? The ticker symbol would be BITX. Do you think there's any chance the SEC approves that? Um, well, I wish them luck. <laughs> I wish them the best of luck. That's it. So that's a no. Well, I look, I tweeted this out. If you look this year, the SEC uh, has let triple leveraged ETNs come to market that cover both gold and the energy sector. And there are also triple levered inverse versions of those. So in my opinion, If the SEC is comfortable with those, and by the way, they've already uh, confirmed that they're comfortable with CME-traded Bitcoin futures. That's what BITC holds or BITO holds. I don't see why these shouldn't be approved. Now, should anybody invest in these? I'm not making that judgment. I'm just saying that uh, going by logic, it seems that the SEC should approve these. Now, I will also say if I'm in the SEC's shoes, I probably don't do anything until this grayscale uh, Bitcoin trust lawsuit 
is resolved, yeah. right? And so yeah, that's, that's that probably a bigger hurdle. Clear, the, the air needs to be cleared on that before they can really make any any uh, further steps one way or the other. I mean, you bring up a good point, right? There's there's a logical case to be sure about, you know, they've been, been approving, uh, the SEC has been approving certain leveraged products. But I think once you start bringing Bitcoin and, and crypto into the mix, uh, it, it takes it to a different ballgame altogether for, for the SEC. So I can understand, uh, you know, the, the arguments both ways, but I do think that there's going to be reticence on, <laughs> on the SEC's part towards uh, approving these. Well, Laura, always so much fun. Uh, We'll have to do this again at the end of the second quarter. We'll see what uh, new launches uh, appear before our eyes. But uh, great catching up, and thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. That was Laura Krigger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify. Own Bitcoin but also want income? There is a way to generate monthly income while you hold. Visit Simplify.us for information on the Simplify Bitcoin Income Strategy. Simplify Asset Management, Inc. is a registered investment advisor. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor. This information is not intended to provide investment advice. I'm now joined by Bob Elliott, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Unlimited, who in October of last year... They launched their first ETF. It's the Unlimited HFND Multi-Strategy Return Tracker ETF, ticker HFND. And already, this ETF has over $70 million in assets, off to a very nice start. And I should note that Bob himself was previously a member of the investment committee at Bridgewater Associates, of course, the largest hedge fund firm in the world, where, among other things, he helped develop the strategies behind their flagship Pure Alpha Fund, and he's now on the line with me from New York. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. All right, so let's start with uh, one of my favorite questions for new ETF entrants, which is why you entered the ETF space. Because I I mentioned your prior role at Bridgewater, so I know altogether you've been building hedge fund strategies for, uh, what, over two decades now. Uh, You led Ray Dalio's investment research team. What made you decide to uh, enter the ETF arena or the uh, ETF terror dome, as we like to call it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I really enjoyed over the course of the last year or so uh, coming into the ETF community because I really think it is uh, it is a community very different from many other areas of the of the finance world. You know, my 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 partner uh, and co-founder, Bruce, who uh, who you know, uh, also had decades of experience in the, in the hedge fund business. He and I, uh, spent a lot of time thinking about what we could, uh, what we could do together. And I think one of the things that we really wrestled with was, do we want to start our own, uh, fund, you know, and be part of the two and 20 industry and continuing, uh, you know, just be another one of those two and 20 managers, or do we want to take our understanding and our skills and could we leverage that to uh, make two and twenty strategies available to every investor? Uh, and that's really what you know. That really got us excited with this idea of take our decades of experience, our understanding of how these strategies, hedge fund strategies, and other two and twenty strategies work, and really and leverage that understanding to be able to create products that you know seek to replicate the risk and return profile that is similar to two and 20 style indexes and we started with hedge funds because um because of our experience there and and frankly because i think there's a real opportunity there right now with uh with active management uh and and you know sort of coming off this near 15 years of unbridled monetary stimulation now turning to an era era of tight money and so i think from a, a macro perspective active management uh, is likely to shine over the course of the next five or ten years. And so that's why we were excited about it. And then we came to the ETF space because um, I probably don't have to tell you or your audience, but you know, the, the ETF structure is the best structure for most investors. Uh, and so if we're trying to create a product that's uh, investor first and trying to get the broad set of investors uh, able to access these sort of, uh, these sort of return streams, these sophisticated return streams, 
we should put it in a package which is best suited for them. So that's why we went down the ETF route rather than, you know, a traditional LP structure or something like that. Yeah, and sort of on that note, I saw a, a quote from you, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you, you essentially said that you recognize that the 2 and 20 business model was very good for the manager and not that great for investors. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you think about uh, hedge fund managers, let's say, hedge fund managers are very good at generating differentiated returns and returns that are uh, in excess of index returns, meaningfully in excess of index returns. The, the thing that they're also very good at is charging very high fees. Right. If you charge two and 20 fees, you know, for a 10 percent returning vehicle, you're talking about almost 400 basis points of fees on an annual basis. And so that really got me and, and, and Bruce together thinking about whether there was a way to sort of bring low cost indexing um, to the world of two and 20. Now, of course, that's totally changed the way, you know, people invest in stocks and in bonds. And the ETF world has been critical as part of that journey. Um, part of the part of the challenge of bringing diversified low cost indexing to the two and twenty space is you can't invest in the products directly, and even if you could, uh, even if you could, you know they charge you two and twenty, and then you'd have to pay yourself something to put it all together. And so our idea was, could we leverage our experience and technology, put those things together, and be able to create uh, a product that you know seeks to replicate the the risk and return profile of the hedge fund industry um, in a way that's imperfect. It doesn't perfectly replicate it, but because we're charging a meaningfully lower fee structure than what a typical two and 20 uh, fund would charge. And because we're uh, because we, we are running a diversified product rather than a concentrated product. And because it's in an ETF wrapper instead of an LP position, we can put together something that is, lower cost, more diversified, and more tax efficient than what investors typically have access to when it comes to direct LP investments or fund-to-fund style investments. Okay, so with that background, let's get into the uh, ETF. This is actively managed. Uh, It can go both long and short. Just take us through the investment process behind HFND. Yeah, what we do is... um, uh, we have built a technology that it, in some ways you could think about uh, allows us to look over the shoulder of what these hedge fund managers are doing in close to real time. And the way that we do that is uh, we take the aggregate hedge fund industry returns uh, that get printed uh, some daily, the best in quality uh, returns are printed monthly a few days after the end of the month. We take that, we break it down into the individual main sub-strategies, global macro, fixed income, ARB, equity, long, short, et cetera. We add back the fees to get to the gross of fees returns of the hedge fund uh, styles. That's what we're trying to replicate the risk and return profile on. And then what we do is we, uh, we use our technology to compare the returns that we're seeing to the plausible set of exposures that managers of that fund style may have on at any point in time and solve for what portfolio best describes the returns that we're seeing most recently. And then we take that understanding, we combine it across the, we we create replications of each one of the individual sub-strategies, so equity, long, short, global, macro, et cetera. And then we combine that portfolio into one with the idea being that a, a combination of strategies is likely to be uh, generate a more consistent return than any one particular strategy. And so that's really what serves as the basis of the HFND ETF on a day-to-day basis is the combination, the portfolio that describes the combination of each one of those different uh, underlying sub-strategies that we're putting together. And how accurate is that then moving forward? So obviously you're getting this data from the uh, from, from hedge funds. You're looking at all of these characteristics. You can look back and say, okay, here's the type of portfolio we need to, to mimic those returns. If you then look forward, you know, obviously you have history now. I'm just curious, how, how closely are you able to track those hedge funds on a move forward basis, if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, uh, we, we closely track on a, on a daily basis and a monthly basis what those returns look like. 
Um, we, because no one will report what the gross of fees returns of hedge funds are, right? They only report basically net of fees returns. We have to construct our own index of what we're tracking. And, and of course, gross of fees returns of hedge funds isn't an investable asset. <laughs> if you can invest in it, that'd be great, but you can't. And so we're, we're tracking so far in, in the, in the roughly six months since we've launched at a 90-ish percent correlation on a, rolling five-day basis of what those uh, returns look like. We actually had, uh, in March, uh, a, um, a, a good stress test of that, a period of, um, of, uh, one of one of the tougher periods, actually, for hedge fund returns over the course of the last um, couple of years. Uh, and in that stress test environment, we tracked the, the, our understanding of the daily performance of hedge funds quite well. Um, and, and so we're feeling pretty good, you know, that we can, uh, that the technology is working as, as expected, um, uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of the returns. And I know you can use, uh, exchange listed futures contracts to replicate the, the returns of the underlying hedge funds, but you're primarily, or, or right now, you're using entirely ETFs to do so, correct? That's right. We're, we're, our universe is, uh, roughly 60, um, possible, uh, possible uh, exposures in aggregate. And so those 60 exposures right now, we're primarily using ETFs as a way to express those exposures. Over time, we may include uh, futures contracts or swaps. Those are all available in the prospectus. But right now, we think the most efficient uh, way to express it is through long and short positions in ETFs. As I'm sure you're aware, there are several other uh, hedge fund tracking ETFs out there. How would you compare or contrast HFND to those other products? Well, I think there, you know, there's a there's always been this goal and and uh, of trying to bring hedge fund style returns to the everyday investor. Um, a lot of the work that was done on that. You know, was really born out of uh, out of uh, out of work done 20 year or 25 years ago um, related to hedge fund cloning, and I think one of the challenges of the work and the products that came out of that set uh, of research is that you know they were very uh, uh, we've come a long way in terms of uh, the techniques and skills uh, that can be applied to create these replications. You know, back then. Uh, and even some of the products that are in the market today are using rolling regressions over the course of 24 or 36 months to try and infer what's going on. Um, the, the good thing about that is you can capture some of the better portfolio construction, underlying portfolio construction of hedge funds. But what it misses is that tactical alpha piece, which drives about half of the return profile of hedge funds at any point in time. And so what we're doing is uh, you can almost think about it as a couple generations uh, beyond what that old replication set of work did. What we're using is we're using modern machine learning approaches. You can kind of think about it as a sophisticated Monte Carlo simulation, uh, a Bayesian model for those who, who know what that is, which allows us to, um, to leverage, frankly, much more uh, significant computing capacity today to run uh, uh, basically a, a simulation of what are all the different plausible portfolios that could describe the returns that we're seeing and identify which of those are most probabilistic uh, uh, to describe the returns. And we do that in a way that's not just looking at today's returns, but looks at the returns through time because that path dependence really gives us some, some information value uh, on, today's, uh, on today's positions because, you know, today's positions are a function of, yesterday's positions, et cetera, because positions don't, aren't discrete in that way. They evolve over time. And so we're really bringing, you know, a modern set of approaches. And I think the other thing, to be frank, is, you know, it's, it's rare for folks with, you know, decades of hedge fund experience to be designing these products as well. You know, Bruce and I have spent careers building proprietary strategies. You know, we've, we've generated billions of dollars of alpha over time. And so we're taking a lot of that understanding that really that craft of how do you create hedge fund strategies that we've, we've built across all these different fund styles and bringing that to the table. So it's, I think a combination of sort of, you know, two steps ahead in terms of the techniques and a combination of much more substantial experience that I think we're bringing together for HFND. 
Bob, this is probably a a very layman-like question for you, but it's one that I think some investors will have, which is if you're combining um, several different hedge fund strategies, don't they at some point cancel each other out? Like, I just think there are so many different hedge fund strategies out there. We can talk, you know, long, short equity, global macro, event-driven, uh, you know, managed futures. Um, some will yin, some will yang. Don't you end up with something that can be watered down? Or is that the idea with an ETF like this? Well, I think the idea here is how do we generate the most consistent return stream that we can, right? That's what we're trying to do. And so I think um, one of the ways to do that, if you think about various hedge fund strategies, any one of those fund styles is pretty good on its own. But there are periods, I mean, any one manager, even the best managers underperform for periods of time, even the best fund strategies underperform for periods of time. But managers, hedge fund managers in general, certainly uh, gross of fees before you add in the fees, generate returns that are meaningfully better than index investing. The main hedge fund strategies generate returns that are meaningfully better than index investing. And so what we're doing is we're putting together those various strategies into a more diversified portfolio. And in the same way, and that should over time generate a more consistent return. It's sort of the same way of saying, well, why would you hold both stocks and bonds in your portfolio? Well, the reason why you hold both stocks and bonds in your portfolio is because you expect both of them to go up over time, but they won't go up at the same time and they won't go down at the same time. And so if you hold both of them in your portfolio, you're likely to get a more consistent return stream. You could do literally the same thing. The same portfolio construction concepts are applicable when you think about alpha strategies, you know, uh, uh, hedge fund strategies or what are called alpha strategies. And so in many ways, what we what we think about with HFND is we're creating diversified alpha strategies in the way you would create a diverse, you know, similar to how you would create a diversified portfolio, uh, a diversified strategic asset allocation portfolio. Bob, just a couple of minutes left here. I want to talk a little bit about your future plans, because my understanding, and I think you were alluding to this a little bit earlier, is that you have visions of building out an entire suite of ETFs here. And I saw a, uh, a Market Watch article not too long ago that indicated you were working towards a potential ETF that would mimic private equity, which I found to be very intriguing because I've seen that concept batted around for a while, but nobody's been able to figure out how to actually do it. Um, are you able to speak to that at all or at least high level what your future plans may be in the ETF space? For sure. I, I think, you know, in many ways, if you think about the world of 2 and 20, it's, you know, this clubby, expensive world that only gives access to, you know, the, the, the wealthiest investors, right? And our thought, in the same way as we bring HFND to the market, which is intended to, you know, replicate the return profile of, uh, you know, the gross of these returns of hedge funds, similarly, we can take our technology and our expertise and start to build portfolios uh, uh, of companies that are look-alike models or look-alike portfolios of other areas of the 2 and 20 space, private equity being one of the, the clearest ones where there's lots of companies that are publicly traded that have that exhibit the same characteristics that are, are made for private equity targets. And so if you put together a portfolio like that, um, I think there's a real opportunity to give investors exposure to similar style returns, but put it into a form where the fees are much lower because a typical private equity firm is charging six or 700 basis points a year in fees when you add it all up. But if we can do that at, say, a 95 basis point management fee, that's a heck of, of an opportunity for folks. And then similarly, you know, the typical private equity firm, your money's locked up for five or 10 years. If we can make that in a vehicle where someone can get access to that liquidity when they want it, that also has a lot of advantages. And so the idea is in the same way we're providing the hedge fund style returns in this wrapper that is, you know, more diversified, more lower cost and more tax efficient, we can generate the same type of return profile 
that private equity, venture capital, private credit, and others are offering, and do it in this vehicle that makes it accessible to everyone, and that is, frankly, just better for the investor when it comes to diversification, cost, and tax efficiency. Well, Bob, with that, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Congratulations on the success so far with HFND. Uh, Very interested to track these potential future ETF launches as well. We'll definitely have to connect again uh, down the road. But thank you for joining me this week. Thanks so much for having me. That was Bob Elliott, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Unlimited. Is it time to amplify your income potential? Discover Amplify's high-quality and high-income ETFs designed to provide you monthly income. When income matters to you, explore Amplify ETFs. Get current monthly yields at AmplifyYields.com. There's no guarantee that distributions will be made. Investing risk includes principal loss. Visit Amplify ETFs to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully. Amplify ETFs are distributed by Foreside Fund Services, LLC. guest this week, certainly not least, is Luke Oliver, head of climate investments and head of strategy at Crane Shares, who currently offers 30 ETFs, about eight and a half billion dollars in assets. Uh, Luke is now joining me from New York. Luke, great having you back on the podcast. Hey, Nathan. Thanks for having me on again. All right. So, look, we're going to go through several climate-related or climate-aligned ETFs. And I I thought, let's just start in the obvious place, which is with your second most popular ETF overall, the uh, Crane Shares Global Carbon Strategy ETF, ticker KRBN. This holds what are called carbon credit futures contracts. Um, I, I guess first, explain what the compliance carbon markets are, which I don't think a lot of people are familiar with, yep. and then perhaps talk about the uh, futures contracts and sort of what you view as the opportunity here. Yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, if you don't mind, I'll just take one step back because I find every day in client conversations around these products, I meet two, especially in the U.S., two camps of people. We have people that are ESG-centric and looking for um, investments that have impact are aligned with solving climate problems. And we have investors who don't care about that stuff, and they're looking for pure, uh, you, know, poor, you know, like your last guest, talking about diversification, talking about smoothing out returns over time and portfolio characteristics. What's really important, and you said it at the beginning, climate-aligned, everything in our climate suite is based on pure investment merit alone, and are all aligned with solving climate problems. So, so where I'm going with this is, and this is the conversation I frequently have, I want to take off the table this debate of whether you like ESG, you don't like ESG. None of these funds are, have any ESG label on them. They are all about the huge opportunities that are being created by the decarbonization of the global economy. And that isn't debatable. That is happening. Inflation Reduction Act is putting trillions of dollars to work to make that happen. Europe has announced their answer to the same thing, attracting, uh, giving out money to incentivize companies to move there and innovate away from fossil fuel. And China is spending uh, hundreds of billions on decarbonizing and leading the charge in green tech. So the global economy is changing, and so you need to be positioned for that. So that's what we mean by climate investing. We are, as a global economy, seeking and competing to change the way that we, we use energy. And the idea isn't to have less energy, it's to have more energy, but without the pollution. And so this is happening. It's, it's, it's undeniable. We all see it. We all see more EVs on the road, more solar panels, more, more uh, windmills and, and, and solar farms being built. So how do you position for that? Now, we've curated our climate suite with three key pillars. You need to belong the carbon markets, which are essentially going to be the engine, the catalyst to make this happen. You need to be long transition equities in order to, to monetize the companies that are going to succeed in this space. It doesn't mean clean companies. It might mean dirty companies that are becoming clean. And then you want to be long some of the key 
commodities that those companies need, like lithium, like cobalt, like copper for, for uh, rebuilding the, the national grid. So um, that's the three places we think you need to allocate money in this new paradigm. So to, I'll jump back to your question. What are the carbon markets? Because they are by far the lion's share of our climate assets. The compliance carbon markets are actually uh, regulatory permits. So the state of California, various provinces in Canada, uh, New England, so all the states from Virginia up to Maine, the UK and the entire European Union are the markets we focus on. There are others. There's China, there's Mexico, there's New Zealand, there's Australia. But the first four that I mentioned are the four primary, most largest, most developed, most liquid compliance markets. And what they are, and uh, what they are is that they set a cap on the amount of pollution permits, so one-ton increments of carbon dioxide pollution. Imagine uh, a ton of carbon dioxide is something like a hot air balloon full of, full of gas. We put 40 billion of those into our atmosphere every year. And so what these programs do is they set a cap. This is mandatory by law. If you are a European company or a Californian company or any of the other companies in the, the markets that I mentioned, there is a ceiling on how much pollution there can be, and they only issue the, that number of, of carbon allowances. So for the European Union, it's about 1.5 billion tons. The companies have to, no one's telling them they can't pollute, but they have to buy these permits. And the permits are auctioned and then traded in a free market. And I should note, this isn't some niche, unusual, esoteric market. These traded about 900 billion last year. So this is an asset class. And what makes it so interesting is that these permits, and I, I call them permits because it makes it very intuitive to understand. The correct term is carbon allowance. These permits or allowances allow one ton of pollution. And the government, so European Union, California Air Resource Board, uh, Regional Greenhouse Gas, Gas Initiative in the, the Northeast, they are using the price of carbon as the catalyst to decarbonize. So it's very simple. As the price rises, companies are going to engineer and innovate away from, from polluting. So as the price goes up, those governments earn a higher revenue for selling them, which they put into, into things like the Inflation Reduction Act, like Fit for 55 in Europe, to accelerate and give grants to, to reduce pollution. Secondly, you get low-hanging fruit. So if, the, if you put a price on carbon, a company that pollutes is immediately, not because they're being good people, but because their CEO and their shareholders demand it, they will go and say, well, is there any unnecessary pollution we're doing? Because now there's a, a cost to doing that. So let's, let's switch from burning coal to switching natural, to natural gas, which is half the pollution. Let's put some new filters. Let's, let's change some of our fuel. Let's change some of our processes. Very cheap things to do, and it will save us money and avoid buying these allowances. So suddenly you get all this, this catalyst for low-hanging fruit reducing pollution. And then as that price rises you've suddenly created value for those people that are innovating towards cleaner processes. So now we've got this, this um, you know, huge capital flow going towards greener fuels, biofuels, efficient processes, carbon capture. All of that has value now because there is a price on carbon. And last but not least, these programs are designed to tighten supply over time. Imagine a Fed tightening cycle, or in this case, a little bit like an easing cycle into perpetuity. So you have, and I'll use Europe as the example, Europe is saying we are going to auction these allowances and we are going to tighten this market, auction fewer, and constantly put in tightening measures because the tighter the market, the lower our pollution. We don't want to tighten too fast because we'll damage the economy. We don't want to tighten too slowly because we won't solve pollution. And so we need to engineer this price tighter over time. So this is the punchline. This is an investment in a large liquid market that doesn't correlate to hardly anything else, especially not equities or uh, fixed income, and is engineered to go higher over time. So you have a positive expected return. There's some volatility, no doubt, but this is a unique asset class en being engineered to move higher as we decarbonize the global economy. And that's why this market is incredibly compelling as, as, a, as an investment. And Luke, can you explain the uh, basic market structure here with the futures, which is what your ETFs hold? And I, I should note, in addition to KRBN, you also offer the European Carbon Allowance ETF, ticker KEUA, and the California Carbon Allowance ETF, ticker KCCA. But my understanding is that only regulated entities within the uh, emissions trading system can transact in the physical 
carbon allowance market. So, so I'm just curious. I mean, explain the interplay between that and the futures market for carbon allowances. Yeah, yeah, and 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 worth noting. Um, so, absolutely. So, California. We have a California only fund. We have a Europe only fund because both markets very unique, very compelling in their own right, and they don't correlate with each other. And KRBN is our global fund mm-hmm. that is that combines Europe, California, UK, and Reggie. So that's the global basket. We love the global basket for the correlation benefits of the whole basket and the, the portfolio benefits of the individual markets. But of course, we have investors that really like California. We have others that really like Europe. Think of Europe as the mature, steadily expected to go up, where versus California, uh, timing is less less clear, but may go up significantly more. So I like to com- to put them together in, in 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 KRBN. But how does the market structure work? So, a, so this may sound new, but it also will sound very familiar because it's no different to oil, gold, and it, it's going to trade like a commodity. So what does that mean? Um, in the carbon markets, you have the primary auction, which is the selling of these allowances directly into the market. And believe it or not, anyone with a an account with the regulator can buy them. So not just the the factories and the cement and steel refiners and glass makers, and it's not just industry. We could buy them physically as a financial firm. However, um, the structuring them into a, a, a ETF that trades on the New York Stock Exchange and can be traded in, uh, in the various accounts that advisors and institutions trade is not possible. So to structure it, we had to use the futures. So think of, um, you have the auction, Think of that as the, you know, the, the oil or the, 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 the gold being mined. Then you have a secondary market in those physicals, and that would be just a bilateral market between parties that, that trade these allowances. And that can be between financials, between two factories, between two airlines, you name it. And then you have a futures market. And the futures market is where all the transparency and liquidity is. And so that's the price discovery mechanism, very much like the commodity space. So we use the futures as an access point. The futures deliver physical allowances. And like any commodity ETF out there, we do not intend to take delivery of the physical, but but roll those futures and maintain uh, exposure for investors. And just whenever, whenever people say commodity ETFs, people say, oh, no, not K1s. We do not have any K1s here. This, is, uh, this will be reported on your 1099. Uh, is not a K1 ETF, but it is holding a basket of futures, and those futures are backed by physical allowances. So long story short, to, to your question, is this is the way to get liquid, transparent access to these markets, and that's, that's why we use the futures. And we, there is, as with a, this is more like a financial asset, so you don't have the, you know, volatile contango backwardation that you get with oil or uh, cotton or any other sort of commodity, this is more like a financial asset. So you have a very, uh, the, the gradient of that slope is not particularly high. Uh, it is in the sort of 2% range over a year. Um, but in a market with this sort of expected returns and diversification benefits that we do have, and, you know, our, our material online will, will show you some very interesting, you know, historical charts on this, it's very compelling. And it's not, it's not particularly expensive in terms of uh, cost of carry, as, as you get with some commodity ETFs like the oils or natural gas ETFs. Luke, we just have a couple of minutes left here. You also offer the Crane Shares Global Carbon Offset Strategy ETF, ticker symbol KSET. Just briefly explain the difference between carbon allowance or carbon compliance, which is what we were just talking about, and then carbon offset. Yes, a very important question because carbon offsets is the voluntary market, meaning that companies are choosing to set targets to decarbonize and they are buying, you know, so, so the way that market works, somebody grows a forest of trees that captures carbon so that that farmer can then sell carbon offsets to a corporation. Let's just say Starbucks. So Starbucks um, is trying to cut its pollution. But in the meantime, while they're figuring out how to do that, they're buying credits from someone who is capturing carbons to allow them to, to, um, to, to be carbon neutral. Now, some people say, oh, that's rich people buying their way out of polluting. That's okay because you are funding additional projects that capture carbon. Now, that market, though, is very new. I, I think of that as the frontier market in carbon. And there's, been, there's good headlines, there's bad headlines. 
that is a market. We have a fund, KSET, that, that gives you access to that. But it's a volatile and, and growing market. could have amazing returns, but it's, you know, buyer beware, that is the, the less liquid, more volatile end of the market. But it's very important to distinguish the difference. KRBN, KCCA, KEUA are holding compliance markets. These are completely transparent. These are completely regulated. They're completely... Um, you know, protected from basic protected by not only the governments that issue them, but the futures exchange that trades them, and then the the SEC backed uh, SEC approved and New York Stock Exchange listed ETF that uh, that we hold. So completely protected um, from from you know disruption to those. The, the, those market structures are completely regulated versus the voluntary market is new and nascent. So um, very important to segregate them. Um, compliance markets, fully developed and transparent. Voluntary markets, potentially great opportunity, but, but think of that as the frontier end and, and, and you know, assign the appropriate risk from a developed market versus a frontier market when allocating, but both very compelling um, uh, strategies. Well, Luke, we're going to have to leave it there. Very interesting uh, topic this week. Excellent job of explaining everything. I said at the top, uh, I'm not sure there's anyone who knows this space better than you. I think you uh, absolutely confirmed that here today. But uh, thank you for joining me this week. No, thanks so much. And for, thanks for letting us uh, talk about it. But it's, it's important people hear about it because it could get overlooked. And I think it's one of the, the better opportunities out there. Yeah, excellent job this week. Uh, that was Luke Oliver, head of climate investments and head of strategy at Crane Shares. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Motley Fool Asset Management. If you would like to learn more about Motley Fool Asset Management's ETFs, you can visit fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. Next week, I'll be joined by ETF.com's editor-in-chief, Sean Aloka. We're going to look at the finalists for their annual ETF Industry Awards, and then Eddie Elfenbein, Portfolio Manager for the Advisor Shares Focused Equity ETF, is going to spotlight that fund and also offer some thoughts on the financial markets. Until then, have a great week, everyone.